Hey, welcome to Wednesday Night Community. We had a long break, a long summer, and we're starting back up. I hope, I hope you guys had a good, a good summer. Uh, summer is always an enjoyable time, but man, it goes fast. Um, but, but this is just a great time. I'm excited for this semester. One thing, things that we um, value at Wednesday Night Community is this idea of kind of a midpoint in the week of stopping, unplugging from all the distractions, doing community, uh, studying scripture, worshiping God, and then taking communion together every week. And so that's kind of the pattern if, if you're new to Wednesday night community. Um, before we get going, let, let me ask a question, because I was talking to Karen Bauer, who, if you guys have been coming on the weekends, we've done like food trucks. Have you guys liked that? It's been really fun during the summer just to be outside and everything. And anyway, she kind of threw out, she's like, hey, do you think, and, and I don't even know if this is possible, but I'm, I'm literally just kind of wanting to get like a show of hands. Thank you. If we had a food truck here on a Wednesday night before, would that be helpful, beneficial? Like, literally, if you're kind of like, no, just don't raise your hand because I don't want to do it and then like one person buys and then they're mad at us. Okay, so some people would. Okay, you'd have double portion. Okay. <laughs> okay, good. Well, we'll, we'll kind of see what, uh, what we can do, but I just thought that might be. I know for us, especially when our kids were younger, man, it was so hard to like get done with work get them fed, and then, yeah, if there's any homework, and then get here, and so, I don't know, that might be something that we could just have a food truck here. So, I'll, I'll let you know, I'll let you know about that, and maybe we'll even put it in the newsletter or something, so you guys can be aware. Um, I apologize for the, <clears throat> my, my voice. Um, if, if you would like a couple days off work, come up, give me a hug and a kiss afterwards, because <laughs> I feel awful. Um, <clears throat> I'm, if... I kept saying, I was saying to Bob earlier, I said, this might be completely incoherent because I just, I'm taking cold medicine and I'm not thinking clearly and all that. So if it's bad, come back next week. Hopefully, <clears throat> hopefully it'll be better. Um, oh, and then other thing I was going to announce real quickly is we're also uh, interested in if anyone has like the gift of helps, service, hospitality, uh, we have a t we've had a team of people who for a number of years have set up the coffee for us ahead of time. We have snacks, and they just kind of set them out and that sort of thing, and then put them away afterwards. Um, and some of those people have stepped away. They're not able to serve anymore. So if, if you're able to do something like that, if you have a heart for that, write your number or email down and just give it to me afterwards, and we'll, we'll connect, okay? So um, we're going to be starting a series here this fall, and it's, it's called Questions That God Asks. Um, and I, as, I've, as I read through scripture, I'm, I'm struck because it's like in, like in page three, the first one comes. You know, God comes, do you remember what the first question God ever asks? Yeah, to Adam after they have rebelled and done life their own way. And then they're hiding and there's shame involved. And, and Adam and, and God says, where are you? Now, of course, the all-knowing God, the all-seeing God, clearly doesn't need to know what's your geographical location. But he's asking the question, think about that. Why do you suppose he's asking that question? He's wanting them to think about things that they're maybe pushing down. Uh, concepts or ideas, truths in their own life that maybe they're willfully ignorant of. They're, they're turning away from something along those lines. And then as you go from page to page for the rest of the story, it's God interacting with people, and he oftentimes does this. He, he asks questions. And when you think about it, why do you suppose he does that instead of just telling them? You ever, if you know a good counselor or a good therapist, 
If you go in and you sit down, you lay down on their couch, and you hear what's going on in my life, blah, 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 do they say, okay, well, here's what you need to do. You need to make a schedule. You need to start doing this. You need to change that. Do they do that, a good therapist? No. What do they do? Yeah. They will think, as, as one over here, right there, <laughs> they ask questions. Why do you suppose that is? Yeah. You own a truth differently if you discover it than if you're told, don't you? You also have to admit things versus just hearing it from someone else's ears. There's power to someone asking you knowingly, like a, a good counselor, good therapist says, tell me more about that. Why do you think this is a pattern? Because when you make the connections, it's life transformative. Well, God is the great therapist and counselor of all times. And so as God enters into humanity's lives, <clears throat> he goes about it always knowing how can I bring life transformation? And so asking questions. The question that we're going to come up with tonight looking at is where were you when I laid the earth's foundations? God said that to this man in the ancient Near East named Job, right? And Job, uh, as you may or may not know, is one of, of three books in the Old Testament that makes up the wisdom literature. Um, in, the, in, the, in the Hebrew mind and the Hebrew culture, wisdom is extremely important. It's talked about all the time. Um, and these three books, one of them being the book of Proverbs, the other being the book of Ecclesiastes, and then the third one being Job, make up the, this nugget within the Hebrew scriptures called the wisdom literature. And each one of them present a very, very different side of the diamond of living well. Proverbs is this idea, it, it, it basically says, when God made the world, he made a grain to it. There's a grain to how relationships work. There's a grain to how vocation and work works. There's a grain to how spending your time works. Does this make sense? If you go along with that grain, it will go well for you. If you go against the grain of how I designed relationships and sexuality and finances and name it, being emotionally healthy, whatever you want to call it, if you go against the grain of how I the grain that I put into that, life is going to stink for you. It's going to be very hard. <laughs> it's going to be really, really difficult. So go along with the grain, life will be good. Go against the grain, life will be bad. Now, that's the basic message of the book of Proverbs. The book of Ecclesiastes says, well, wait a second. I think there's a glitch in the system. I've known some people who, who have done very, they've, they've gone with the grain in relationships and yet someone else did something to them and their life's a wreck. I know someone who was very wise with their money. They went with a grain of finances and then this chance thing happened and their life blew up. So hold on, not that simple. The book of Job then asks the question after those two truths, the book of Job says, so how is God running the world? Is it like the book of Proverbs? Is it nice and neat and clean? Is it absolutely chaotic and there's no grain? Like, what's going on? And so, for no other reason than to save my voice, I want us to watch a short video from the Bible Project on the book of Job. Take a look at this. There are three books in the Bible known as the wisdom literature. 
Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Job. The first, Proverbs, showed us that God is wise and just. Yeah, we learned that God has ordered the world so that it's fair. The righteous are rewarded, the wicked are punished. In other words, you get what you deserve. But then we meet Ecclesiastes, who observes, well, people don't always get what they deserve. Uh, yeah, he said the world isn't always fair, that life is unpredictable and hard to comprehend, just like smoke. And this makes you wonder, okay, well, is God wise and just? Exactly. And so it's that question that is being explored in the final book of wisdom, Job. All right, let's dive in. So Job begins with a strange story that takes place up in the heavens, which are described something like a heavenly command center. So God is there with these angelic creatures called the sons of God, and they're all there reporting for duty. And God points out this guy Job, his servant, showing how righteous and good he is. And then one of these angelic creatures approaches. He's referred to in Hebrew as the Satan. The Satan. Who is this? Well, this word is actually a title, which literally means the one who is opposed. So out of this whole crew, he is the one questioning how God is running the world. And he proposes that Job might not actually love God, that he's only a good person because God rewards him. If God were to take away all of the good things he gave to Job, then we would see his true colors. So he thinks Job is just working the system? That's exactly right. Maybe he's obeying just to get what he wants. So God agrees to this experiment and allows the Satan to inflict suffering on Job. And Job loses everyone and everything that he cares about. It is devastating. And remember, he deserves none of this. God himself said so. The remarkable thing is that in the midst of all this suffering, Job still praises God. At least for chapters one and two. But then in chapter three, we find out how he's really feeling inside. He unleashes this poem that reveals his devastation. It's a long, elaborate curse on the day that he was born. After this, some of Job's friends come to visit him to offer their help. And all of them are like, Job, you must have done something horribly wrong to deserve this. After all, we know God is just, and we know the world is ordered by God's justice and fairness, so you must be getting what you deserve. And for the next 34 chapters, the friends and Job go back and forth in very dense Hebrew poetry. His friends keep speculating about why God might have sent such suffering, and they even start making up lists of hypothetical sins that Job must have committed. But after each accusation, Job defends his innocence. And Job is innocent. He is. He's also on an emotional roller coaster. At some moments, he's very confident that God is still wise and just. Yeah, in other moments, he's doubting God's goodness. He even comes to accuse God of being reckless, unfair, and corrupt. So by the end of the dialogue, Job demands that God come and explain himself in person. And God does so. He comes in the form of a great storm cloud. Now, God doesn't give Job a direct answer. He doesn't tell Job about the conversation with the Satan. Yeah, he does something very different. He takes Job on a virtual tour of the universe. He shows Job how grand the world is. And he asks him if he's even capable of running it or understanding it just for a day. 
He shows Job how much detail there is in the world, things that we might see every day but really don't understand at all. But God does. He knows it all intimately. He pays attention to the beauty and operations of the universe in ways that we haven't even imagined and in places that we will never see. Then to conclude, God shows Job two wondrous beasts and brags about how great they are. Yeah, they are dangerous. I mean, they would kill you without even thinking about it. And God says they're not evil. They're actually a part of his good world. And then that's it. That's God's whole defense. It's kind of weird. I mean, what was this all about? It seems to be this. From Job's point of view, it looks like God is not just. But God's perspective is infinitely bigger. He's dynamically interacting with a whole universe of complexity when he makes decisions. And this is what God calls his wisdom. So Job asking God to defend himself is actually kind of absurd. He couldn't comprehend this kind of complexity even if he wanted to. So where does this leave us? Well, it leaves Job in a place of humility. He never learned why he suffered, and yet he's able to live in peace and in the fear of the Lord. But that's not where the book ends, because after this, God restores to Job double everything he had lost. And this, again, is surprising. I mean, is this a reward? Is God saying, congratulations, Job, you passed this elaborate test? No. I mean, the whole book just made the point that Job losing everything was not a punishment. And so now getting it back isn't a reward. So why does he get it back? Well, apparently God, in his wisdom, decided to give Job a gift. We don't know why. But what we do know is that Job is now the kind of person who, no matter what comes, good or bad, he can trust God's wisdom. And that's the book of Job and the end of our wisdom series. These biblical books of wisdom are amazing. Each one offers a unique perspective on the good life, and you need to hear all of them together as you learn to live with wisdom and in the fear of the Lord. How many of you guys are familiar with the Bible Project? Some of you, it's such an awesome resource. Check them out on YouTube or online. They've got so many cool, cool resources. There. Um, one of the things about the book of Job, we're going to jump in. If you have your Bibles, I would encourage you to open to the book of Job. It comes right before Psalms. Psalms is like crack your Bible and you're right in the middle. So just go a little bit to the left uh, or turn on your smartphone and you can check it out that way as well. But the book of Job, it's, it's very self-aware that it, that of the reader. And what I mean by that is this. It's not just a story about Job. It gives you two chapters at the beginning that sort of says like, hey, come on in. I want you to know something Job doesn't know. So you're sort of let into the story differently, and you know something that Job never finds out the rest of it, of kind of what's, what's going on in his life. But, but suffering is, is a unique thing in our lives, isn't it? <clears throat> I remember my, my family always mocks me for this, but when I was a little kid, I don't know how old I was. I would have been just a young lad. <clears throat> and I was sick. I remember I was like nauseous. And my, like to this day, my family just mocks me for this. I was a child and they mocked me. <clears throat> I was probably five or something and I was nauseous and I'm sick. And I, and, I, and, and I remember saying this, you know, and I was like on, like in front of the toilet, you know, just throwing up. And I leaned up and I was like, why me? <clears throat> and I just, you know, kept barfing and stuff. And my family just mocked. They just laughed. Like to this day, they're just like, you're such a drama queen. Why me? Because you're throwing up, right? But I, it, I felt that was a real feeling I had. Like, 
why me, right? And, and, and the question, why me, it starts there, but eventually it, it turns into a different question. What kind of God are you? Like, how are you running things that this is happening to me? And so what starts out feeling like I'm on trial, like why me, I'm on trial, real quickly turns to you're on trial, God, right? Your policies for how you're running the world, your wisdom, how you do things, that's on trial in my mind. That happens <clears throat> real quickly. Now, one, one real quick comment before we get into the book of Job. This is kind of an issue of, an, of uh, interpretation. There's, there's a big question as to whether or not the book of Job is an historical character and historical events or if it's a thought experiment. Have you heard the phrase thought experiment? Thought experiment is what you do like in different disciplines, maybe philosophy. You have a thesis or an idea, so you create a scenario and you put the thesis and ideas in there and you say, how will they play out? It's a thought experiment. Jesus used thought experiments. One day there was a man walking and he found a field and there was a treasure buried in it. And it was so important, he went and sold everything he had to acquire it. Or one time there were these 10 virgins and they were waiting and they had these oil lamps. Or there was uh, this man who was robbed on a road and a priest and, and uh, another person walked by. But then there was a Samaritan and he actually stopped and took care of him and he put him on his horse. He took him to another town. These were these sort of stories. They're not historical stories. Parables is what we call Jesus's. But they are these thought experiences of seeing how ideas work in the real world when you put them into the system. Does that make sense? So again, people are divided on this and take different views. Some think it's an historical event. Others think that this is this beautifully refined, because uh, it's long sections of dense Hebrew poetry for like 40-some chapters. And there's a very tiny intro in the beginning and a tiny conclusion. And it's just this beautiful <clears throat> poetry all throughout. If it is a thought experiment, then chapters one and two don't necessarily tell you how God really makes decisions in the heavens, as it were, because that's just setting up the story. That's kind of getting it going. The story is really meant to tell you how does God work on the ground in people's lives. Does that, does that make sense? Are you with me? So <clears throat> that's just, again, one issue of interpretation there. So take a look, if you would. Um, we're going to kind of survey chapters one and two real quickly, jump into the 40-some chapters of, of poetry, and then we'll, we'll get to the end with the question that God asks. So uh, chapter one, verse one, we, we read this. In the land of Uz, there lived a man whose name was Job. Now, just a comment about that. This, even the way it's, it's setting it up, Uz is like a far-off country. Uh, it, it's, it, it would be like... Maybe something we have a common thing in our day from movies where we say, a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. That's the setup. We know that. We all know that. That's, that's creating this. Let me create this situation for you. All of the names. <clears throat> now, this is written for the Hebrew people. All of the names in here, these are non-Hebrew names. Okay? It's not taking place in, you know, there's no temple. You'll notice that the father is doing sacrifices for his son as the, he's representing the family. So it's a, it's a different kind of cultural setting too. It's, this is not Hebrew, even though it's written for the Hebrew people. This um, uh, says, this man, Job, was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. If you have a Bible, think about that. Underline that phrase. Think about it. Store that away in your mind, okay? How it describes him. He feared God, number one, and number two, he shunned evil. He said he had seven sons, three daughters. 
He owns 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 donkeys, and had a large number of servants. He was the greatest man among all the people of the East. His sons used to hold feasts in their homes on their birthdays, and they would invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. When a period of feasting had run its course, Job would make arrangements for them to be purified. Early in the morning, he would sacrifice a burnt offering for each of them, thinking, perhaps my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. This was Job's regular Custom. So again, it's not set in Hebrew culture. He's acting as sort of the family priest, which is not a <clears throat> Hebrew concept here. But just kind of an important uh, note of, of setup here that Job and his friends don't know this because they're not aware of the conversation going on again up in heaven. But, but we, the reader, are privy to a very important piece of information that we have to carry with us as we go through the chapters. And that's in verse 8. So you remember the video, it says God's kind of in his command center, the heavenly council, and this one steps forward, they call them the satan, it just means the opposer. So someone is opposing, saying, I'm not sure if this is the best policy. And he says, I'm not sure this is right, but then God says, verse eight, then the Lord said to the opposer, have you considered my servant Job? There was no one else on earth like him. And then here's the phrase, he is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Now, a word about the opposer. He, he asks a really interesting question. When we encounter suffering, <clears throat> I do anyway, I say, why do the righteous suffer? Right? That's our question. The opposer turns that question on its head. He says, why should you reward the righteous? Because if you do, what does that make, does that really make the person righteous? Meaning, if I know if I do this and do that, I'll get a reward, um, is my righteousness really authentic? What if I'm doing it just to get the reward, right? And so he kind of says, you're actually, this is counterproductive, God. You're trying to make good people. Am I understanding you correct? Correct. So you want to make good people where their intentions are good, but you're setting up a system which will, by necessity, impugn their motives. They won't be good people. Hmm. Interesting objection. That's the thought experiment played out in the rest of the chapter, at least from his perspective there. Um, and, and of course, the claim is that, according to the accuser, Job's that kind of guy. Job is serving you, and he's quote-unquote righteous because of look how he gets hooked up. I mean, look at his life. You've, you've put a hedge the opposer says that a hedge of protection around Job's life. And of course, Job loses everything, as we saw in the story, except the only thing he didn't lose is, maybe this is good or bad, his wife. And his wife comes to him and says, are you still holding to your integrity, Mr. Man of High Integrity? Just curse God and die, right? And, he's, and, and, and he says, how, how could you do that? How could you even suggest you know, such a thing? And... Um, opposes her. It goes against that. Um, Job loses everything, but then these three friends show up, uh, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, and it says in the text when they showed up, they didn't even recognize him. Like, he's that just of a person, just, you know, someone who has lost their life practically. doesn't even recognize him. And this, it says that they see him, and they just start weeping, and they tear their own clothes, and they take dust from the ground, and they put it on their own heads, and they sit down on the ground with Job for seven days and don't say a word. Seven days, seven nights. 
This is, this is uh, Jewish uh, mourning, that you go and you just be with the person for seven days. Don't say a word. And at the end of <clears throat> the seven days, Job speaks. So in chapter three is when Job starts talking. And then from like until chapter 37, it's basically three cycles so first, first Job talks to, uh, El, or Eliphaz talks, Job responds. Bildad talks, Job responds. Zophar talks, Job responds. Three times that happens. And then there's this one guy, this younger person who comes in toward the end as well. But it's this long, dense thing. But here's, here's what I want us to get. If you have a pen, I want you to draw something on your bulletin inside, back, or notes, or somewhere. Draw a triangle. And I want you to label the three corners of the triangle because this is, what's go this is the heart of what's going on here. If you get this, you'll see what the wrestle is. <clears throat> so the, the top of the, or it doesn't really matter which one it is, one of the corners, write Job's righteousness. Job's righteousness. Another one of the corners, write God's justice. And then on the third corner, this is sort of a mouthful, the principle of retribution. The principle of retribution. Or you could say just recompense, or there's <clears throat> different ways to think about it here. Now, the principle of retribution is this idea that if, if you... Um, if you live within the grain of the moral universe, things will go well for you. If things are not going well for you, it's because you're not living in the grain. Does that make sense? It's an immediate cause and effect response to the moral world. So what you see in your life is merely the result, almost in a karmic way, is an exact result of some reflection of your moral standing, <clears throat> your moral life. That's the principle of just retribution. This is the idea that this is how God runs the world. God is running the world by this way. And of course, this is the general message of the book of Proverbs. Listen to Proverbs chapter three, talking about, remember, this is, God put this grain into the world. The, the author writes, my sons, this is a man writing to his son about how to live a wise life. My son, do not forget my teaching, but keep my commands in your heart, for they will prolong your life many years and bring you peace and prosperity. Let love and faithfulness never leave you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Then you will win favor and a good name in the sight of God and men. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all of your ways, submit to him, and he will make your path straight. <clears throat> Do not be wise in your own eyes. Now, where have you heard this before? Fear the Lord and shun evil. Do you remember I said store that away? That was, the, that was the statement God said about Job exactly, right? Fear the Lord and shun evil. Uh, this will bring health to your body, nourishment to your bones. Honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of your crop. Then your barns will be filled to overflowing. Your vats will bring, brim over with new wine. Both Job and his friends, look at your triangle, both Job and his friends believe in all three corners, right? So here's the question. How do I make sense of my suffering given these three corners? Um, anyone here a contractor? 
do, do that kind of work, I won't ask any questions. I just, okay, if you're into building, if, if, if you ever talk to a contractor and they're maybe gonna do work for you, they will say there are three things. You can have it good, you probably know this, right? You can have it fast, or you can have it, yeah, cheap or inexpensive, right? But you can't have all three, <laughs> right? You can have good and fast, but it's going to be pricey. You can have fast and cheap, but it'll be low quality. Do you get the point? You can have two of the three. You can't have all three. That's the, that, that seems to be the situation here. The fact that Job is suffering, you can't have that God is just and Job is perfectly righteous and the principle of um, retribution is that, that that's how God <clears throat> is working in the universe. So there's this looming question as you read through all of this dense poetry, and that is this question, who is on trial? Where, which corner of your triangle is the problem? Um, now, Job thinks God, God's corner. That's the problem. Listen to Job 16, 18. He says this. He says, all was well with me, Things were great. Life was going wonderful. But he, God, shattered me. He seized me by the neck and crushed me. He has made me his target. His archers surround me. Without pity, he pierces my kidneys and spills my gall on the ground. Again and again, he bursts upon me. He rushes at me like a warrior. And then skipping down to verse 18, he said, listen, this is interesting. This is an echo of something else in the Old Testament. He says, earth, do not cover up my blood May my cry never be laid to rest. Do you know that echo? Don't let the earth cover up my blood. When Cain killed Abel, the statement was made, it says Abel's blood is crying up to God from the ground for justice. He's using that as a phrase to say, hey, earth, I'm crying to you to, to don't cover it up because I'm crying out against God, you are unjust. Wow. I mean, he's being... He's being very real here. So he thinks one of the corner, which one of the corners is wrong? It's God's justice. Now, his friends and the original, the Satan or the opposer in the beginning, they think that it's Job who is on trial. They think the corner that you need to cross out is Job's <clears throat> righteousness. And friend, in fact, as you, he mentioned in the video, the friends actually start making up lists of possible or hypothetical sins that Job must have committed. Uh, Job, or uh, uh, 22, five through 10. He says, um, one of the friends says, is, is not your wickedness great? Are not your sins endless? You demanded security from your relatives for no reason. And then you stripped the people of their clothing, leaving them naked. He's accusing of like taking people's clothing for, uh, as like a promissory note and then leaving them naked out in the cold. You gave no water to the weary. That's why this is happening. You withheld food from the hungry. Though you were a powerful man, owning land, <clears throat> an honored man, living on it, and you sent widows away empty-handed. You broke the strength of the fatherless. That is why snares are all around you. Why sudden peril terrifies you. <clears throat> in fact, his friends even do this. They even say, okay, Job, tell you what. You keep saying you're innocent. I get it. Just admit it. Just confess. Repent. And then God will give you all your stuff back. Now, should he do that? Well, if he does, he's, he's, he really is the kind of person that the Satan said he was, remember? Because the Satan said the only reason he's, he's righteous is to get your stuff. His friends are tempting him. Just, 
just get the stuff. Just say it. Just say you did it. Just say you did it. God will forgive you. He'll give you all your stuff back. And the fact that Job doesn't do it demonstrates this, he really is a righteous person because that would have been an easy way out here. And so this is this idea of disinterested righteousness. The opposer says there's no such thing as disinterested righteousness. You're only righteous because you're interested in something. <laughs> but Job is demonstrating no. He's actually has, he has, he's righteous and it's, it's not because he's interested in getting anything from it. So that's the reason for his adamant, no, 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 I'm not, I didn't do this. I want a hearing, I am innocent. And of course we know he is. <clears throat> so, um, but, but of course in chapter one, God has already declared him innocent. That's why I said we were led into, you know, a little earlier than everyone else, chapters one and two. So Job is on this emotional roller coaster, which is what you experience when you go through suffering, when you go through difficulty, when there's things in question in your life that are out of joint, it is being like on an emotional <clears throat> roller coaster. And he, he can't reconcile. He used to think that, that God was, was good and just, but he can't reconcile that with his suffering anymore because of the triangle. And so he, he, he does things like this. Um, he accuses God of being a bully, chapter 16, verse 9. He even claims that everything bad that happens is God's fault in chapter 9, verse 22. But then immediately right after that, he's terrified because he wants to hope. <laughs> he wants to believe that, no, maybe that's wrong. Maybe that corner of the triangle, maybe that's still really <clears throat> there. And so Job, Job finally throws down the gauntlet. He throws down the gauntlet, and he says, okay, I want my day in court. I, I, I'm done with this. He, he just says, be quiet, you, 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 know, you advisors, you three listening. I want my day in court. And so he says this, oh, that I had someone to hear me. And he says, I, I sign now my defense, meaning this is my formal letters of submission to the court. Um, let the Almighty answer me. Let the accuser put his incident in writing. Surely I would wear it on my shoulder. I would put it on like a crown. I would give him an account of my every step. I would present it to him as to a ruler. And then finally, in verse 38, amazingly, God actually shows up. Which is, is I mean, imagine if you had like a problem with the president of the United States and you wrote him a letter and all of a sudden Air Force One touches down on your front yard and you're like, Okay, he was listening. <laughs> that's, that's the picture here. God shows up, it says, in a storm. And then, it, you know, this is this huge, you know, God answers Job from the storm, and God gives Job this kind of virtual tour of the universe, and this is what he says, chapter 38. Then the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm. He says, who, who is this that obscures my plans with words without knowledge? He says, brace yourself like a man. I will question you, because the whole past 30-some chapters is just questioning, questioning, questioning. I will question you, and you shall answer me. And here's our question for tonight. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off the dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? On what were its footings set, or who laid its cornerstone? While the morning stars sang together and the angels shouted for joy, who, who, sh 
who shut up the sea behind doors when it burst forth from the womb, when I made the clouds its garment and wrapped it in thick darkness, when I fixed limits for it and set its doors and bars in place, when I said, this far you may come and no farther, here is where your proud waves halt. Then God has all of these like questions about the animal kingdom. He's like, uh, Job, explain to me how the feathers of an ostrich are different than the feathers of a stork. You ever, you ever seen that? You ever noticed that they're quite different? Explain to me how um, the, the grazing pattern works among all of these animals that are you know, undomesticated. You're not even, you don't know what they're like. Explain to me how all of that works. Now, many people have misunderstood Job's response, and they kind of think, you know, because he talks about hippo, all these different, you know, creature stuff. A lot of people think that basically what God's doing is this, hey, Job, can you make a hippo? Then shut up, right? Like, that, like that, that, that's kind of how it feels, right? That, you know, this shows up, he's like, you're just an idiot. You're so stupid. Like, why are you even asking this? But I, w- I would submit to you that that's not what he's doing at all. See, God is answering an accusation. The accusation is this, God, you're a poor manager, you're not, you're not taking care of all the details in my life. You're, you're, you're not aware. You're, you're sort of asleep at the wheel, but you're not a good manager in terms of um, you're just not paying attention to everything that's happening. And I would suggest, and I want you to think about how you feel after watching this video, this is God's response to the accusation that he's a poor manager. I want you to write down one word. How do you feel right now after watching that? What would you say? Throw a couple out to me. Amazing. Small. Awestruck. Excited. How great God is. I heard an amen. He knows what he's doing. Does it make sense that this is the answer to, you're just not paying attention to the details, God? And he goes, really? And he gives him a virtual tour of the universe. And this is what Job realizes. The problem, there's one corner left in your triangle. Cross that out. And instead, write the word wisdom. What God says is that my I am... I'm taking care of all of this stuff. Look at all the, how wise do you suppose you gotta be to take care of all of that? Probably pretty wise. So what, <clears throat> what's going on here is God is not giving him an answer. He's not giving him an answer. He's saying, learn a little bit more about me and then maybe, do you think you can trust my wisdom? I get it, it doesn't make sense. Of course it doesn't make sense. It doesn't feel good. But do you trust me that I'm still righteous and I, I, I'm still just? And yes, in this thought experiment, yes, you're completely righteous, but I am wise. And how I am taking care of things is wise. And, and maybe one day it'll make sense. But I don't ask you to make sense of it. Don't even ask you. I ask you to turn to me and think, reflect. This is why we as Christians say, I need to have my... my my, my eyes refocused on the person of Jesus because when I do that, I can trust 
because you are gonna, and I am gonna step into some really difficult things in life, really, really difficult. And if I can't navigate it trusting the wisdom of God, it's gonna be absolutely terrifying. And so Job says this in Job 42. He says, this is his response to the virtual tour. He says, I know that you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. You asked, who is this that obscures my plans without knowledge? And he says, like, you're, you're dead on. <laughs> Surely I spoke of things that I just, I, just, I just didn't understand them. Things too wonderful for me to know. You said, listen now, and I will speak. I will question. You will answer me. And he says, my, I love this. He said, my ears had heard of you. He says, but now my eyes have seen you. I love that. I'd heard about you. I'd known you, but not like now. I know you in a totally different way. And then God actually commends Job at the end in verse seven, right after that. He says, the Lord said, uh, had said these things to Job. After he said them, he said to Eliphaz, these are his buddies, his friends. He says, I am angry with you <laughs> and your two friends because you have not spoken the truth about me as my servant Job has. Like I read that, I'm like, wait, what? Job said some pretty nasty things to God, didn't he? In 7.7, 7, Job says that he will never see good again. In 7.9, Job denies that there is life after death. In 9.17, Job claims there is no reason behind his suffering. In 12.6, Job charges God with letting evil have its day. In 13.24, Job claims that God counts him as an enemy. And in 29.4, Job says that God is no longer his friend. So clearly, he's not saying everything. But he's, here's, here's what I would suggest to you. This is at least a piece of it. That Job took all of that anger and frustration and bitterness and he, he, did, he like worked it out with God. That, that God actually invites us to do that. If, if, you were, if you're a follower of Jesus and you think like, well, I'm angry about these things, but I can't, I can't tell God I'm kind of angry at him. God goes, yeah, you actually have to tell me that you're angry at me because I want to work this out with you. I'm gonna ask you questions and we're gonna talk, and, but I want you to work it out with me. And then there's even kind of a funny thing at the end, the very end here, when he says to the friend Eliphaz, he says, I mean, I'm, I'm angry at you, you've done this. And he says, so now, he says this to Eliphaz, God says, so now take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and sacrifice a burnt offering for yourselves. My servant Job will pray for you and listen to, what does this sound like? And I will accept his prayer and not deal with you according to to your folly, <laughs> principle of retribution. You were so sure of that, you, you still want that right now, do you? No, I'll give you grace. That's not how I work in this world. That perception of the world is off, you wouldn't want it to be true. Here's what I wanna do. We're gonna take communion in a second, but first, I, wa I wanna pray for those of us who, maybe God is inviting you to trust his wisdom about some part of your life that just doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Maybe part of your life that hurts, a part of your life that you have a lot of frustration over, or just worry, you have worry over because you don't know what to do. Would you stand? I wanna pray for that, and then I want us to take communion as a, as a community and as, as a symbol. Go ahead and stand with me.
Heavenly Father, I pray this evening that our eyes have been maybe opened a little bit wider to the, to the wisdom of God. And as we sung earlier in the song, that you truly are the only wise king. And that maybe that means something to us different now than it did when we sang it just a little bit ago. And Father, I pray for people who, who have something in their life that they, they're really struggling to trust, God, that you are wise. But I pray that they would respond to your invitation to trust the wisdom, the deep, deep wisdom of God with this thing that they're holding on to that maybe is taking up a large corner of their mind in terms of attention and thought. Maybe it's causing worry. It's causing anxiety. And God, may they have the resolve to open their hands to give that to you. And that each day they would wake up and remind themselves he's the only wise king and I'm gonna trust his wisdom. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.